May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. There's this old saying that we use when something seems particularly easy. We say, it's like taking candy from a baby. You've said that, right? You know that one. It's like taking candy from a baby. Where did that come from? I mean, if you think about it, taking candy from a baby seems rather cruel, doesn't it? I mean, why would we say it's like taking candy from a baby? Every time I hear that, I imagine some, you know, some little guy sitting in the back seat of a car, you know, he's got, he's got this dum-dum sucker all tight up in his hand they probably got from the teller at the bank, and there's his big brother or sister, you know, prying it out of his hand. And I think nothing could be less easy than that. That seems like not only a... A, a cruel thing, but a difficult one. Let the baby have his own candy, right? Why would you want to take candy from a baby? Besides, if you've actually tried to do it, it's not really that easy. I mean, next time you're around a little baby, say a year old or so, um, and you know that you're going to be... Take one of those big giant lollies. You know, the big swirly ones, about as big as a saucer, right? Take it... Don't tell their parents you're going to do this little social experiment, by the way. But take this little lolly over to them and, and give it to them and let them, you know, get that sugary taste on their tongue and in their mouth for a while and then try to get it away from them, right? You know what's going to happen. Right? They'll clench that thing up and, and let out a wail that's like, you know, really high-pitched and loud. And scre- If they've got a couple teeth, watch out because they're coming at your hand. It's not easy to take candy from a baby. It's rather difficult, actually. Um, you know, when I think about uh, the whole taking candy from a baby part, the thing that bothers me the most is the cruelty. I hate to hear babies cry. I don't. I, when I hear a baby crying, I like go pick up the baby and you know I pat it. I say things like I used to say to my kids, like, "Oh, don't worry, the Browns will win a Super Bowl someday," you know, and. Um, he won't always be in office, you know, or uh, you don't know who I'm talking about. And, uh, and uh, you know, I'm going to buy you a diamond ring, you know, that sort of thing. That's what I do when a baby's crying. I, I think it's difficult. Take, unless, of course, you're just plain mean. I remember when I lived in Kentucky, I, I pastored this little church uh, in the country, and, and it, was, it was a great place, and there's this uh, little brother and sister there, Will and Emily. Emily was the older. She was probably about eight. Will was probably about five or six. And I remember one day, I'm in the kitchen and, and talking to some people, and, and all of a sudden, here comes Will running through it at top speed. And, and then a, a few uh, paces behind him, here comes Emily chasing him, and, and their mother was there, and she grabbed them both as they were going by. And, and she did what mothers do, you know, when children are running through the church. She's giving them an earful, you know, don't you run in the church, whatever. And I'm thinking, well, it's kind of fun that they're running in the church, but I'm not going to get in between you and your, your children. So I just let her have it out with them for a bit, and she's giving it to them, and and then at some point she says, now why are you running? And, and you can imagine the conversation, can't you? Well, he did this and, and she did this and then he did this and you know, back and forth for a while. And then Emily said something. She says, Will hit me in the face and he did it out of nothing but pure meanness. Out of no- Little girls in Kentucky are very sophisticated in their moral uh, assessments of people. He did it out of pure meanness. No reason at all. Just because he's mean. And maybe... Maybe you've met somebody who does stuff out of pure meanness. You know, brother or sister. Or maybe even a little bit more, more, uh, a little more difficult even than that. I remember when I was about five years old, my mother let us go trick-or-treating one extra lap around the block. 
I was only five. My older brother was seven. I don't know what in the world this woman was thinking. By the way, I need to call her and, and get with her about this, you know. Five years old, seven years old, she says, all right, one more lap around the block. You can go. I'll wait for you. And, and so she let us go. We got about halfway around the block, and this teenager comes up to me. Imagine little Joe in his Casper the Friendly Ghost costume, right? Plastic mask, all that. And, and, and this kid comes up to me and says, hey, can I see how much candy you got? And I said, no, you know, you're, you're going to steal my candy. He said, no, I, I promise I won't steal. I just want to see how good you did tonight. And so naive little five-year-old Joe, I opened up my bag. And don't you know that no good rat threw a light-lidded firecracker right into that bag, plastic bag, and boom, as soon as it, 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 it exploded, candy went everywhere. Him and his friends laughed and ran away. And I'm standing there crying under my plastic mask. My brother Jeff, who's about seven, is there trying to gather up my candy for me. And, and we get, you know what? I learned a lesson that day. A lesson I carried with me the rest of my life. Don't trust people. You know, when they promise you something, they're out to get you. You know, don't trust them. People are not trustworthy. I learned a little idiom, not just like taking candy from a baby. I learned another one. Burn me once, shame on you. Burn me twice, shame on me. You know that one too, don't you? Been burned once, not going to get burned twice. We've got to be careful. People are they're not trustworthy all the time. A lot of people aren't trustworthy. And so we have our guard up. We're cautious. Circumspect with our, with our confidence. Today's gospel lesson, six days removed from another event. We don't have it in here. You haven't read it. It was, it was in the, chapter 16. But it's only six days after this event. Jesus is together with his, with his friends. They're called disciples. They're sitting around. They're talking. They're perhaps having a meal, and he says to them, what's the word on the street? Who do people say that I am? And all of a sudden the disciples start chiming in, don't they? They say, oh, you know, there's some rumors that maybe you're, you know, Jeremiah, or, or maybe that you're Elijah, or maybe one of the prophets reincarnated. Some people were even saying, you could be John the Baptist, already reincarnated. Seems a little odd, but this is the word on the street. Don't underestimate this. Don't downplay what they're saying. Comparing Jesus to Elijah and Jeremiah and John the Baptist or one of the prophets is kind of like comparing a ball player to Babe Ruth or Willie Mays. You know, it's like comparing a tennis player to Chris Everett Lloyd or, or Serena Williams or somebody like that. Comparing Jesus to Jeremiah and Elijah is a big deal. There's a lot of buzz on the streets of Galilee. It's a good thing. People are impressed by you. And Jesus asks a follow-up question, though, doesn't he? But who do you say that I am? And his friends kind of stump for a moment. And then Peter speaks up. He says, you are the Messiah. Christos in Greek, but it's Mashiach in Hebrew. You are the Messiah. The Son of the living God. It's another way of saying, you are God Almighty. Jesus affirms them. Good job. Well done. Six days later, he says to Peter and two others, let's go up to a mountain. I want to take you up for a special mountain retreat. And they get to the top of the mountain, and all of a sudden something happened. Jesus transforms. He transfigures. The, the word is metamorphose. He, he transforms right before their eyes. Begins glowing like a glow stick. You know, his, his whole face is shining. And, and people, are, they're caught up, you know, these, these three, Peter, James, and John. My goodness, they didn't expect this. 
And, and all of a sudden, Elijah and Moses appear. Elijah and Moses. It's like the all-time you know, Hebrew idol, American idol. It's like the all-time uh, two best guys. Moses, the law, Elijah, the prophet. I mean, this is the law and the prophets right there, embodied form. And Jesus is conversing with them. I mean, this is a great day. And, and you know what they do? They do the only thing they can do. They fall down on their faces afraid. Peter says, oh, this is wonderful. Let's build three shrines. We'll stay here forever. And then something else happens. The cloud. It's just like, it's just like the Old Testament lesson today, isn't it? The New Testament lesson is the same as the Old. The cloud enshrouds the mountain. You heard echoes from Exodus there, didn't you? When you heard this new one. Oh, I think I heard this just a couple pages before in the bulletin. And a voice. We're not told whose voice. Do you notice that? No one says the voice of just a voice. You know when a voice comes out of the cloud, you don't have to ask whose voice it is. This is my son, the beloved, in whom I am well pleased. Oh, goodness, what an affirmation. This is my son, the beloved, in whom I am well pleased. That's what's called an indicative. It's a matter of fact. It's like saying chocolate is good. Or Father Joe is a devilishly handsome priest. Um, it's a matter of fact. You just say it. Why are you laughing? Um, but then there's a little follow-up, a little caveat. It's not an indicative. It's an imperative. You remember grammar, don't you? An imperative is a command. This is my son, the beloved, in whom I'm well pleased. Matter of fact. But then a command. Listen to him. Listen to him. What does Jesus say? What's the first thing he says after the voice from the cloud says, listen to him? He says this. The most oft-repeated phrase in all of Scripture. The most repeated command in all of Scripture is this. Don't be afraid. Arise. Get up. And stop being afraid. It's what's called a present active imperative. It means stop being afraid now and keep stop being afraid. It, it, have this ongoing fearlessness about you. Stop being afraid now and forever. This is the last thing Jesus says to them before they head down the mountain. Do you know where the road down the mountain leads? It leads to the cross. In every one of the Gospels, the road down from the mountain is the road to the cross. To say, don't be afraid, isn't like they don't have something to be afraid of. Of course they have something to be afraid of. Nobody goes running to the cross. Not even Jesus. Don't be afraid. For some time now, we've been in the season of Epiphany. Epiphany is a great season. It's fantastic. We get to wear green when there's snow out inside. I mean, it's a great season. Epiphany is the revelation that Jesus came to save the whole world. Jew and Gentile, slave and free, man and woman, Muslim and Hindu, whatever else you want to. He came for everybody. He came to save the whole world. It's a season of celebration. It's a great revelation to, to embody and to, to live into. But Wednesday begins another season 
This Wednesday begins the season of Lent. And Lent says salvation comes by way of the cross. You know, it's not that I don't believe it. But I'm not really a fan of it, you know. I don't like it. I think I would have thought of another way to save the world. Not the cross. Lent is a difficult season. It's scary. We don't really want to embrace this hardship of the road to the cross. You know, we've learned through our lives to not trust people in a million ways. Whether they throw little mini sticks of dynamite into our Halloween bag, where they lie to us or cheat us or steal us or scam us or whatever they do. We've learned over and over not to trust people. And so we're probably, if we're honest, deep down inside, a little suspect about trusting Jesus. Especially when he says, come on, let's go on the way to the cross. Listen to the voice from the cloud, though, afresh. This is my son, the beloved, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. It, it reminds me of that the line in Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You remember when Lucy is talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about going to visit Aslan, and she says something like, um, you know, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And, and Mrs. Beaver said, well, that's good. You should feel rather nervous. I mean, nobody in their right mind could go meet a lion without their knees knocking a little bit. And Lucy says then, so he isn't safe? And Mr. Beaver chimes in at this point. He says, safe? Safe? Haven't you been listening to what Mrs. Beaver said? No, of course he isn't safe. But he's good. Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. You can trust him. Amen.